0: How is this, Michael? Sorry. Um, Great honor to be with you. It is a noble quest that you are on, and I'm thrilled to get to be here and learn with you. I want to dive in. COVID, George Floyd, racism, inflation, political polarization, Donald Trump, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court, declining church attendance, seminaries closing their doors, doors, record percentages of pastors thinking about quitting, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, church scandals, worship wars, culture wars, old Christians staying home, young Christians deconstructing. If you hold to traditional sexual ethics, you are thought in many circles to be immoral. If you raise questions about inclusivity, you are not allowed to call yourself evangelical, which nobody is sure they want to be called anymore anyhow. (laughs) White Christian nationalism is surging. Housing prices impossible. Young staff unfindable. Volunteers unrecruitable. Church campuses unbuildable. Property unaffordable. This is a great time to be in ministry. It really is. It is an opportunity to be grasped and savored. And I'll tell you why. When the bottom falls out of your outer world, you turn to your inner world. Because that's all you have left. And it's there you find God. So, these are good days. Um, I was asked to talk about formation in the life of the leader. And I'm very grateful to have gotten to think about that topic. Uh, with all of us and I I thought I would begin by thinking about just the words in that assignment and then move to what does formation look like when it goes right, how do we pursue it. But I want to start with the word leader. My favorite definition of leader comes from Ron Heifetz from Harvard. He said, um, a leader is someone who disappoints people at the rate they can stand. And if you think about Jesus, that is not a bad definition. (laughs) Right up till about Calvary. Uh, I don't know about you. For me, it's a very complicated and still confusing word after many, many decades. I was at one church where the leadership word was so exalted that everybody there believed they had the spiritual gift of leadership. Everybody on staff on every survey had the spiritual gift of leadership. All the volunteers thought they had the spiritual gift of leadership. All the attenders thought they did. People thought their pets had the spiritual gift of leadership. It was everything. And then I've seen denomination, uh, and this tends to happen sometimes, particularly in older ones, that almost looks as though it were designed to thwart leadership. It's a wonderful book by Edwin Freeman, uh, Failure of Nerve, that talks about what a social ecosystem can look like when courage and bold initiative-taking and creativity begin to die and people think a good decision is one where everybody gets their fingerprints on the football. It's a very complex word. And I was thinking, getting ready for this, I think part of it is because there's overlapping meanings. That's why I've never been able to hear or come up with one single definition of leader that I found particularly helpful. So let me just run through them real quickly. For one thing, I believe leadership refers to something universally true about all of us, that you were made in the image of God to exercise dominion. God says in Genesis, when human beings are made, rule, be fruitful and multiply. And it carries all the way through to the book of Revelation when the saints will sit on their thrones. You are a royal priesthood, a nation of kings. And every one of us is that way. Uh, Your kingdom is your range of effective will where what you say goes you are made to have an impact to be significant we watch that happen in little children and it's amazing what is every two-year-old's favorite word no what's their next favorite word mine those are kingdom words <laughs> it's a real good words but it's very difficult to lead people without violating their kingdom Sometimes I will say to my wife, Nancy, when we go to bed at night, I command you to turn that light off, and she will leave that light on all (laughs) night before she will give me the satisfaction of doing what I order her to do, because we were all made to have dominion. That's true for all of us. Uh, Secondly, we talk about leaders as people who have a strong moral compass, who have a healthy will, who don't capitulate easily to peer pressure, whereas Followers, uh, along these lines, are people who will just do what they're told. Our, the animals that we use to describe leaders are eagles and lions. What animals do we use to describe followers? Sheep. Lemmings, just wherever everybody else goes. Uh, a third way we talk about leaders are somebody that has a positional authority. A boss, head coach, CEO, um, lead pastor. That phrase didn't used to exist. There didn't used to be a thing called a lead pastor, but there is now. Titles come and go, and it reflects our intrigue with that word. But of course, we all know being a boss doesn't necessarily make you a leader. And then uh, there are influencers. This is kind of an interesting emerging category people who crush it on social media, thought leaders, opinion shapers, people who know how to build a brand and leverage a great platform. I was just reading today, there are mega influencers with a million or more followers, um, macro influencers, micro influencers, and now nano influencers. If you're a nano influencer, nobody cares. (laughs) By the way, by the way, in our preoccupation with this, It remains the case that in the history of the human race, there has never been a single influencer who has come close to a carpenter from Nazareth. I work in the San Francisco area. Why is there a San Francisco? Because hundreds of years ago, there was a man named Francis who was so captivated by a man named Jesus that centuries later, they would name a city after him. We live now in San Jose. Why is there a San Jose? Because once there was a man named Joseph who was associated with this man named Jesus in such a powerful way that that's a city. The capital of our state, California, is Sacramento. Why is there a Sacramento? Because this man Jesus once had a meal for some friends that was so unforgettable, the most famous meal in the history of eating when we think about the table, that they named a city after it. Before I lived there, I lived in Chicago. Why is there a Chicago? No one knows. I was going to try that with Portland, but that just felt a little too mean, so I decided not to do that. Anyway, influencers. Um, And then another category is situational leaders. Uh, In certain situations, everybody's lost. Whoever knows something about nature will take the lead. Or if there's a medical emergency, a nurse or a doctor, somebody with medical training in a situation, they'll be situational leaders. And then there is corporate or organizational leadership. And the folks that have these kind of gifts may have an ability to cast a vision, strategic thinking, very often a lot of personal charisma, uh, team builders, people developers, able to recruit, uh, able to make decisions. It's a real complicated word, And we get confused about it quite often, I think. The spiritual gift of leadership should be recognized and honored and leveraged, but so should every other spiritual gift. As a matter of fact, Paul said the gifts that are the most overlooked humanly ought to be the most honored in the body of Christ. And every human being is made to exercise dominion. Dallas Willard used to say that discipleship, spiritual formation, is training for reigning. And we have a hard time sometimes talking about leadership in a way that recognizes every single human being was made to reign. We live in a culture where everybody wants to be a leader and nobody wants to be a follower. We, call, we follow a man who called everybody to be a follower and nobody to be a leader. So that leads to this kind of challenge. What do we do when the prestige of the word leader keeps going up But the prestige of the word pastor keeps going down. And that's part of why I just want to tell you right now, it is a noble thing that you do. Because you're not likely to hear it too much, and a lot of the props that used to reinforce that for people have evaporated. You all know this better than I do. Church historian friend of mine said in 1950, 10% 10% of all Phi Beta Kappas, thought leaders, in America were clergy. 10%. Today is far less than one-tenth of one percent. Pastors used to be recognized as educated people in their communities. Newspapers, they were these things that were printed on paper, um, used, to, used to publish the sermons of pastors on Monday morning after they were delivered on Sunday. Now. You all know what I'm talking about. If I'm flying next to somebody on a plane and I don't want to have a conversation with them, I will tell them what I do. If I want to have a conversation, I was talking to a guy a while ago and just told him a little bit about my education but not what I did. And he talked for an hour. He was involved in tech, Bay Area guy, told me about his girlfriend, told me about his kids, used to be a soccer player, all of his problems. Finally, after an hour, he turned and was curious and said, What do you do? And I said... I'm a pastor. These are his direct words. He said, I'll be damned. (laughs) And I said, well, maybe, but I hope not. We could talk about that for a while. (laughs) Being a pastor is more challenging, uh, has fewer resources, faces larger culture resistance, and has less dignity than ever. We need help. We need help. The state of leaders, however you want to define that, people who carry the burden of Jesus' church is enormous. So what is formation? Formation is the process by which the inner self is given character or shape. Formation is the process by which the inner character or inner self is given shape. The best example that I can think of is just simply there is a physical dimension to you. You have a body, and it is being shaped all the time, for better or for worse, by accident or on purpose, what we eat, um, how we exercise or don't, rest or don't. uh, Our bodies are being shaped all the time, and there is a spiritual dimension to you. There is an unseen dimension, thoughts and feelings, emotions, perceptions, and decisions. And it is being shaped all the time, like it or not, on purpose or by accident, for better or for worse. It's very important that we and then our churches understand this. Spiritual formation is not an activity restricted for introspective, introverted, white males who like to read devotional writers like Thomas Merton and Henry Nouwen and Barack Obama. Um, It was, by the way, a wonderful thing. I got to um, spend the night last night in an Airbnb with um, Brandon and John Mark and to get to wake up in the morning and do devotions with John Mark Comer as he reads Bernie Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) Unforgettable. No, that's a lie. I made that up. Spiritual formation is not a particular set of techniques. John Mark was talking today about uh, Bible study is indispensable and prayer is indispensable, and meditation and Lectio Divina, which is a way of engaging with uh, Scripture, centering prayer. Those are wonderful things, but spiritual formation is not just swapping out one set of methods for another set of methods. Spiritual formation is not extra credit work for overachieving attenders. Spiritual formation is not an alternative to discipleship. I've had folks ask me, are we a discipleship church or are we a spiritual formation church? A disciple is simply somebody who has put Jesus in charge of her or his spiritual formation. And spiritual formation is simply the process that we engage in as we become disciples of Jesus. We are all being spiritually formed all the time. Everybody is receiving a spiritual formation. And by the way, you cannot overcome 23 and a half hours of spiritual malformation with 30 minutes of reformation. And by the way, we're talking about a rule of life. Everybody has a rule of life. And this wisdom goes way back, the very first song. Blessed is the one who does not Stand in the way of wicked, uh, walk in the steps of sinners, or stand in the way of the wicked, or sit in the seat of the scorners. That's a way of life. That's, and, and basically it's just doing what everybody does. But her or his delight is in the law of the Lord. For the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Jesus talked about a narrow way and a broad way. Everybody's got a way of life. Um, so that brings me to the next question. What is life? Formation in the life of a leader. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it abundantly, or 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life, or Ephesians 2, 5. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. What does that mean? This is from Dallas Willard. By the way, for those of you who don't know Dallas Willard, Dallas taught philosophy at the University of Southern California for many decades, uh, very influential thinker and writer in philosophy, and particularly around spiritual life. Um, he's the smartest man I have ever known. I would never get in an argument with Dallas because I was afraid he would prove I don't exist. <laughs> and... Um, He was one of those people, you know how sometimes you hear somebody talk or you read what they've written and then you meet them and they're kind of disappointing? I have met that person. I have been that person for many, many people. With Dallas, it was the other way around. His life was better than his mind. And from the first time I ever sat down with him, it was apparent that God was simply as present to him as this podium is to me. Uh, This is what he writes about life. Life is always and everywhere an inner power to relate to other things in certain specific ways. The living thing has an inherent power that contacts what is beyond it, drawing from the beyond to enhance and extend its being and influence. G.K. Chesterton has that wonderful quote in Orthodoxy. Like what part of what we love about children is they are so full of life. He says, because a child is abounding in vitality, it is in spirit, fierce and free, and it wants everything repeated and unchanged. So it says to the grown-up, do it again. And the grown-up does it again until they are nearly dead. For a grown-up is not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. Maybe God says, do it again every day to the sun, and do it again every day to the moon. Perhaps the reason there are so many daisies is not automatic necessity. Maybe God makes every daisy separately and has never got tired of making them. Perhaps God has the eternal appetite of infancy For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. We have sinned and grown old. That's life. And those are not just clever words. Dallas writes, a spiritual life consists in that range of activities in which people cooperatively interact with God, And the spiritual order deriving from God's personality in God's action. I am to be the way that a seed puts roots out into the earth, so it's constantly taking in nurture. I was meant to be drawing power from God all the time. We mostly, Dallas, would say experience grace as God's power in us. One of the great misconceptions in many churches in our day is that only sinners need grace. Dallas used to say, saints burn more grace than sinners ever could. They burn grace like a, like a rocket burns rocket fuel. Just live on it. That's life. Redemption is not the avoidance of eternal torture. It is the impartation of life. And now that leads to the next question for people who do what you and I do, is the life I'm inviting other people to live the life I'm living myself? Is the life I spend time teaching about, casting vision for, calling other people to enter into, is that the life, when, I, when I'm stepping down from the stage, that I myself am actually living? Am I sending out my roots like a little seed? You all know about this, the temptation of ministry is to make the outcomes we pursue more important than the person we become. Dallas would often say, the main thing God gets out of your life is the person you become. And that's the main thing you get out of your life. Not the resume you write, not even the ministry you build. It is the person that we become that we will take with us into eternity. And very often people go into ministry and become exhausted, preoccupied, burnout, anxious, dissatisfied, overcommitted, overwhelmed, discontented, vaguely guilty. We sacrifice the life of Jesus in pursuit of our success while trying to convince everybody else that they should sacrifice their success for the life of Jesus. Jesus. The world does not need any more untransformed, successful pastors leading untransforming, successful churches. And that's part of why it's so important that we get the gospel right. I love what John Mark had to say about that today. When we get the gospel right, it will always have the natural consequence of creating disciples. Because it is the gospel of the availability of life together with Jesus in his kingdom. And if you want it, then the way that you pursue it is by becoming a disciple. To be with him, to learn from him, how to live like him. Dallas used to say an interesting thing about pastors, it kind of haunted me sometimes. He said, pastors must know, pastors must know. And I thought about that for a long time. I don't think it's mostly um, uh, about academic knowledge, although that's very good. Uh, One of the groups that I have been studying a lot for a number of years is AA, and just their community and their program. Uh, If you've ever been to an AA meeting, And I'll go to them because I find them quite helpful. Almost always at the end, after they say the serenity prayer or the Lord's Prayer, everybody joins hands and they will chant together, keep coming back, it works. And very often they add a little coda, keep coming back, it works if you work it. Honestly, one of the great problems in the church is, for the most part, we have a hard time saying that. See, in AA, it's not that they're all that educated academically about A. What they know is, if I don't come, I will get drunk and die. I know it works. And I think that's the kind of knowing that Dallas was talking about, to know Jesus and that there is a way of life that leads to nurture and grace. And, And gang, that's what you're signing up to work on And I just want to tell you, it's been a dream for a long, long time. And to see a group like this, others that are watching online to say, I will devote my life to try to find a way in our day with our technology and our challenges and our culture through which people might be able to. There's a weird thing in AA because they often meet in basements of churches. One of their sayings is when you go into a church, you can go upstairs and hear about miracles or you can go downstairs and see them. I think we've got to go downstairs. You know, a question that has been asked by more Christian authors and speakers than I could count, tons of them, they'll talk about the uh, marvel of AA meetings and then ask, why can't the church be more like AA? And I think the short answer is it can if Christians are willing to be more like alcoholics and show up in utter neediness and be real about not hiding. So much around that. I always used to think the story of Ananias and Sapphira was really strange and very severe. Um, I don't have time to get into it right now, except you look at this story. What happened there, in, in a lot of ways, it was echoing what happened in the Garden of Eden with Ananias and Sapphira. For the first time in the early church, somebody hid and pretended to be better than they were. And spiritual power can flow in almost any circumstance, but it cannot flow when people hide and pretend to be what we are not. Leads me to the next observation i want to make. Spiritual leadership has a unique capacity to malform the life of a leader. Eugene Peterson used to say, ministry reinforces inattentiveness to God. Because generally people want to know Was it a good sermon? Was it a good program? Was it a good service? Is the kids' ministry good? Not many people will ask you, how is it with your soul? And we see malformed leadership all through Scripture. Genesis 3.16, after the fall, uh, part of the curse is, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, I grew up in the kind of church that thought that was a pretty good idea. We actually thought like that was the way it's supposed to be. That happened after the fall. That's Genesis 3, not Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. We remain to rule over creation for good in a spirit of servanthood, not to dominate one another. Or Jesus, Jesus said to his followers, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. When Jesus said that he was not being snarky, that's literally what they would do. Peter Leithard has a great book uh, called Gratitude about gift giving in the economy back in that day, and people that had resources would often give it, but they literally would claim the title benefactors, which meant that the people who had been given from them were now obligated to them. That was a literal title in Jesus' day. You're not drawing that from thin air. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. One of the most significant themes of Jesus' teaching is to deconstruct leadership. And I think if there is a rich topic for the process of deconstruction in our day, leadership would be it. Ego inflation, misguided loyalty, isolation, lack of accountability, misunderstanding who really counts, image management, fake vulnerability, comparison. So, we're called to have Christ formed in us and our lives. And in the time that's left, I want to talk to you about Uh, four indicators of flourishing in ministry and these actually come from the largest study of clergy well-being that I know mostly comes out of Duke researcher named Matt Bloom and his team have written about flourishing in ministry so I want to go through the four categories they come up with talk a bit as I do about how do we pursue them and if you want to um, to get as much out of this talk as you can, you might rate yourself if you're, being, if you're feeling courageous, scale of 1 to 10. Where do you stand on these four indicators these days, and where might God be calling you to make some changes? So, uh, number one, first indicator of flourishing in ministry is what Bloom calls daily well-being. Daily well-being. Basic satisfaction in life having an energized spirit, being engaged in challenging work, starting the day with a sense of anticipation. I was reading a wonderful book not too long ago that talked about this ancient liturgy. The author said, Every day should be a "sursum corda, uh, which I guess is Latin for lift up your hearts. And from about the third century on, when the community would gather, that would be part of the call to begin the day. Lift up your hearts, and the people would say, we will lift them up indeed. To start a day with a lifted, elevated heart, and then to go to bed at night with a grateful spirit. Many years ago, I was on a sabbatical, and I went to spend one day with Dallas, and I asked him. Dallas, what do I need to do to more effectively lead my church in spiritual formation? And then there was a long pause with Dallas. There was always a long pause. And then he said, you must arrange your life so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. And I said, no, I wasn't asking about me. I was asking about them. And he said, I know. But the reality is that you will inevitably reproduce yourself. And the people who are closest to you will watch you. And if there is a gap between what you say and how you live, they will always believe how you live. And... Uh, I don't know about you, for me the temptation is always to think I will experience deep contentment, joy, and confidence when ministry goes really well, when the church is full, when the sermons are great, when everybody's happy. Someday, not today, not and Dallas said You must do this. Your elders will not do this. Your spouse will not do this. The church fairy will not sprinkle fairy dust on you and do this. You must arrange your life so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. I have that as a sign in my little office off the garage where I work pretty much every day. look at it every day when I go in there. So how do I do that? Well, one big part of it will be um, having the right people in your life who know you and speak deeply into your soul. I think one of the most important needs for people, particularly in ministry, is to have what is sometimes called a fully disclosing friend. In Celtic spirituality, it was called a soul friend. A soul friend was defined as one before whom you have no secrets. And it took a long time for me. I had a friend that I made in grad school at Fuller named Rick, and we were very close. I'd known him for about 10 years, and I finally decided I would like to have someone like that in my life. So I asked Rick, if he would listen to my confession. And I spent several weeks reviewing my life and writing stuff down, and then eventually we met at a place where we could talk, and it took uh, well over an hour, and I read through, going back as far as I could remember, as honestly as I could, the things that I was the most ashamed of. I'll never forget that moment. I didn't want to look at him. And I didn't know what he was going to say. What he said, I would never have guessed in a million years. He, he made me look at him, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, John, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. And it felt so good, I wanted to make up more bad stuff to tell him, just to hear <laughs> how much he loved me. And I came to realize then, something I should have known a lot earlier, it is only possible to be loved to the extent that I am known. And I can only be fully loved if I am fully known. Because as long as there's a part of me that you don't know, you may say you love me, but inside I will inevitably say, yes, but if you knew this about me. Uh, You can do a little two-by-two quadrant on this. I think uh, it may come up. Yeah, so one axis is I can know or, or, or be not known, and another one is I can be accepted or not accepted. If I'm known and accepted, then I am loved. If I'm not known but I'm accepted, then I look impressive. If I'm neither accepted or known, I'm a stranger. A lot of us can live in churches as strangers. If I'm known... And then not accept that as I'm known, I'm rejected. And that is so painful. The biblical word for that is cursed. To be cursed. That is so painful. A lot of us will go down to the impressive quadrant to try to avoid the rejection quadrant. So for daily well-being, Rick and I call each other Monday through Friday call them this morning. Every morning at 6.50, how did yesterday go? Where did I mess up? Where do I need help? What do I face today? Pray for each other. Every day we do that. And then, you know, periodically, uh, deeper times together, we did that this last Thursday. Uh, So that's a big part of daily well-being. Joy is a huge part of daily well-being. In the Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, his final chapter is on maybe the most neglected of the disciplines, the discipline of celebration. Now in the Bible, we're commanded to be joyful. God would not command it if it wasn't something that we could do, but we can't do it by willpower. We have to train for it. You go through the Old Testament, between Sabbath, feast days and so, one scholar says, About a third of the days of Israel were actually set aside not for normal work, for Sabbath, for festival keeping, and so on. Why would they do that? They were training for joy. You read Deuteronomy 14 sometime. I will not talk about it right now, but as a Baptist growing up, I was shocked by the commandments of what sorts of things they were to imbibe to celebrate in Deuteronomy 14. It's in the Bible. They were training for joy. Maybe what you need once a week as a part of your Sabbath is a day of celebration. Um, I have one day a week where I just eat horrible food that I love all day long. It's actually on Sundays, and often when I would get up to preach, I would be so full because I had so much. I would have like a bunch of peanut butter and honey bagels and eggs and bacon for breakfast and I would be doing this all through the sermon. and Nobody knew why I was doing it. Maybe once a day, eat what you love to eat. Wear what you love to wear. Listen to music that you love to listen to. Be with people that make you happy. Because there are other people that don't bring you joy. They suck joy out of you like a hoover. When they're around, say, I can't be with you today. This is my joy day. I'll be with you tomorrow. Okay? Um... Uh, Bloom talks about having what he calls a restorative niche. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, when they were just looking empirically, they looked at over 10,000 pastors, 20 different denominations, who seems to be flourishing by various measures. One of the most important uh, practices was what they called a restorative niche. Um, we might use the word hobby, but that doesn't tend to conjure up the strength of it. It will be an activity um, that you have a certain level of skill at, that you can grow at, that can give you a sense of mastery or flow, if you're familiar with all of that research, and that you do it for intrinsic joy, not to get approval, not to show off, not for money, just for the joy of doing it itself. And they found that not very many pastors have what they would call a restorative niche, uh, golfing, surfing, knitting, music, uh, could be any number of things, carpentry, Uh, I met a couple years ago a guy that actually lived with Dallas and Jane for a few years. He said one of the things Dallas used to do, Dallas was actually a union roofer way back in the day. He said Dallas would go up on the roof and work on his roof and sing opera songs. (laughs) So that may be your thing. I don't know what it is. People who engage in a restorative niche once a week were in about the highest category of folks flourishing in ministry. I'll tell you, and this is part of their research, for whatever it's worth, and again, I I spend a good deal of my time writing and teaching about the idea of spiritual disciplines or practices, understand the baggage about the word, learning about that changed my life. However, in their study, they say people who engaged in at least weekly involvement in a restoration niche we're flourishing more often than people engaged in any of the spiritual disciplines that they measure. Now, one of the problems is, of course, a discipline is simply an activity that you engage in by direct effort to give you the power to do what you cannot now do by direct effort, so there is an unlimited number of spiritual disciplines, if it's understood rightly. And This idea of an activity that is restorative to you is precisely a spiritual discipline. Unfortunately, we don't understand it, and we cram that language into goofy little pietistic, unappealing, as though God's given gold stars out for that kind of stuff. We end up measuring people's spiritual maturity by their devotional activity. That is a bad idea. If in Jesus' day you measured people's spiritual maturity by their devotional activity, who would come out on top? Pharisees. We've got to find a way to measure spiritual maturity where the Pharisees don't win. So, um, uh, uh, last last part of the daily well-being thing, uh, sustaining companionship with Jesus. Sustaining companionship with Jesus. Practice of the presence of God. Read over and over again, um, Brother Lawrence, Frank Lobbick, sacrament of the present moment. A couple of years ago, it was really interesting. I had, a, I had a bad day and I had a good day. And I was trying to ask, what was the difference between the two of them? And what came were three words, um, unhurried, surrendered, and free. And I find for me, if I can live those three words, unhurried, Surrendered. You will be done, you will be done, you will be done. Free. The burden's not on me. I live in the Bay Area. It is such a joy to watch the Golden State Warriors. Anybody here at Golden State Warriors? Steph Curry? Um, he does this thing, started the last year or two, where when it's clear they're going to win the game, anybody know this? He'll do this. He drains a three-pointer and then, And he said, that's from a bedtime ritual with the kids. Job well done. We can rest now. The game is still going on. People are still shooting and defending, but the outcome is assured. So that's daily well-being. second indicator of flourishing in ministry is what Bloom calls resilience. The ability to adapt to change. I have a friend, Gary Hamill, who says, your organization's irrelevance is the rate at which the change of the world is happening faster than the change in your organization. That's kind of sobering to think about with churches. Change continues to accelerate um, the ability to respond to life's challenges, the capacity to grow, being able to learn, being able to recover. Being able to manage frustration, being able to incorporate pain into ministry. Bloom writes that maybe the great challenge for ministry in our day, especially right now, is burnout. Emotional exhaustion, physical exhaustion, a sense of depersonalization at work such that it's harder to be creative, it's harder to be patient, I'm losing effectiveness, Uh, it's harder to make decisions. Really interesting, there's a wonderful book by Steve Kuss called Managing Leadership Anxiety, and uh, he talks about how most burnout is more a reflection of unresolved anxiety than it is level of workload. Burnout is more a reflection of unresolved anxiety than of level of burnout, uh, level of workload. And part of what that means is very often in churches, it's not gonna work to try to reduce burnout by reducing people's workload because that's not what's really causing it. Church that I used to be at in California Menlo back in the 90s, before I was there, in one year, this is during the uh, dot com boom, the budget of the church literally tripled. So they literally tripled the size of the staff at the church in one year. Went from 60 people to 180 people. Do you think that the sense of stress went down 300%? No. Very often, that's not what stress in burnout is about. Um, uh, Steve says that anxiety is what we experience when we do not get what we think we need. So King Saul, everybody's singing. Saul's saying his thousands, David is tens of thousands. Saul says, I think I need that. And then there's deep anxiety. Steve also says, if you want to know if a leader is anxious, don't ask the leader, ask the leader's team. And that what we need is um, fully differentiated leaders. We don't have time to get into this. One of the great themes in scripture, all the way from creation on, is uh, there's chaos, There's separation, God separates light and darkness, earth and sky, dry land and water. God joins them together and then there's shalom, wholeness flourishing. But the separateness has to come before the togetherness and when it comes to people, that means churches need really differentiated leaders who are not reactive um, not addicted to the approval of the people that I serve. I cannot serve people, lead people, or love people if I'm living in the need of their approval. So I got to find what are some ways to train for freedom from approval addiction. I'll tell you one that Steve did. This is kind of an interesting spiritual addiction, uh, spiritual discipline. Steve actually deliberately preached a bad sermon one weekend at his church poorly constructed, no logical flow, dull illustrations, people, you know, didn't know what the point of it was. He just deliberately, in order to free himself from the need of everybody's approval, literally got up and preached a bad sermon. And he said, part of what was humbling was, people said nice sermon just about as often as they ever did in his great sermons. So I was like, how do I engage in those practices that will tell me, ah, I'm free? My worth isn't contingent on what everybody says about me. By the way, I think resilience is part of why solitude is uniquely important for leaders. Uh, For me, it is primarily when I go away and am just away for a while that my body begins to remember I have a life and it's bigger than my job and that what everybody thinks about me is not who I am. And I was not made to bear the outcomes of my work. Dallas used to talk a lot about we're not made to carry outcomes. We are not Atlas. Remember Atlas, the guy that had the world on his shoulders? That's not us. That to work really hard and and learn from feedback but our well-being is not on the line and Dallas came and spoke one time at our church and he was a philosopher he would often talk in a monotone sometimes he would talk and everybody would be riveted and then other times people kind of get lost and a lot of times in churches for a lot of us we wrestle with as soon as the service is over how to go how to go how to go How am I doing? How'd the talk go? How'd the service go? And Dallas finished the talk and we're walking out to my car and he's just humming an old hymn under his breath and it's like there was not a cell in his body that was asking anxiously, how did it go? It was like watching a kid with a helium balloon, just let it go. Oh, that's what what it means not to live under the burden of outcomes. I really want that. That would be so good. He said one time when he was a young man preaching, when he was getting up to preach, the Lord said to him, Dallas, remember, it is what I do with the words after they leave your mouth, before they hit people's ear, that matters. Um, third indicator of a flourishing servant of Jesus, and this one's real challenging for me, is authenticity. Personal integrity, the courage to be real, having clarity about my identity and my values and my beliefs, and the courage to just say it the way that it is and allow the chips to fall where they may. Courageous authenticity. Authenticity. I have a friend who reminds me about that in wonderful and challenging ways because it is my constant growth edge. There's a series of books by an author named Susan Howich. One of them is called Glittering Image. It's about an English clergyman. It's set back in England, I think, in the 30s, um, who is, uh, wants to be gifted but is drawn to how he looks in front of everybody. He wants to serve God, but his idol is this glittering image. And he falls apart. Very captivating book. Um, my wife got me a copy of that book. My parents got me a copy of that book. My friend Rick got me a copy of that book. My sister Barbie, this is a true story, Barbie got me all six books in the series. I get it. I need the book. Don't get me the freaking book. Um, but man, glittering image. And there's no authenticity there. And it's exhausting. It's an exhausting way to live. Bloom talks about a couple of really interesting uh, areas of alignment that are needed in ministry one is is there a values alignment you know every pastor has what might be called a spiritual theological center of gravity here are the authors I resonate here's the ideas here's the words here's the books here's where I find kind of find myself on the spectrum theologically and spiritually And we all have that. And every church has a theological center of gravity. And if the center of gravity for the pastor does not fit the center of gravity for the church, and I've been in situations like that, that's a problem. And then I start wondering, do I fit? Can I be myself? And Bloom says, then then arise what he calls facades of conformity. I pretend to be a better leader than I am, or more intellectual than I am, or farther to the right than I am, or farther to the left than I am, or to really love something that I don't really love, or to like people that I really think are mean to me. So, do I really fit here? And then, uh, am I highly self-aware? Again, this has been a long journey for me. I don't even remember this, shows you what a problem I have. When it comes to the myers Brig, y'all have heard of the myers Brig? So I have a PhD in clinical psychology. My friend Rick tells me when we went through the program, I told him, quite emphatically, I was ESTJ. I now clearly understand myself to be um, INFP. I was wrong on every category. I'm glad, because it turns out Jesus was an INFP, but um, uh, my lack of self-awareness, just massive. So. So authenticity, the ability to actually be who I am, where I am, and especially in churches. And then, and then four, the final indicator, is uh, what Bloom calls thriving, thriving. Experiencing meaning, significance, and purpose in ministry. It doesn't mean having a pain-free life but it does include involving integrating pain into my ministry so that it can be redeemed. Knowing what I do counts somehow. Even if nobody else can see it, God and I can. Having values and beliefs that inspire. And on this one, uh, when it comes to How do I find that? Where do I look for the deepest level of meaning, significance, purpose, the values that are bedrock? What I would recommend, at least after this season, for me is lean into pain. Because I don't know why fully, but somehow it helps you know what you really believe. John Mark mentions it's been a hard season in my life Um, part of that was uh, for our family our oldest uh, struggles a lot with anxiety and then in one year went through three miscarriages and and then got pregnant and it stuck the fourth time but her anxiety was so bad we did not know if she was going to make it through it and she would have these nightmares of giving birth to something awful and then the delivery itself was as bad as any of those nightmares were and thank God, everything turned out to be fine, but it was horrible. And then, and then we got to be grandparents, and that was such a joy. Um, somebody explained it to me like this. When I had kids, I realized I would kill for my kids. And then I had grandkids and realized I would kill my kids for my grandkids. <laughs> and that was the pastor who told me that. That's a true story, whose team is here in this room right now. Um, that same time as we were embarking on the journey of grandparenting, uh, my dad was diagnosed with a cavernoma, kind of like a tumor in his brain stem, and he'd always been a real physical guy. I had a tennis racket in my crib when I was a baby to let me know what was coming, but his body began to betray him. And um, I watched as one by one the abilities that my little grandchild was gaining, my father was losing. He had always wanted to go to the Galapagos Islands. My mom never wanted to go. So I decided to take him. We went on one of those National Geographic cruises. And it was a few months before he died. It was the last month physically he could have done it. And it was kind of painful to watch. Um, he was just shuffling with a walker by then. When we would sit down for dinner, because uh, his face was partially paralyzed, food would kind of dribble out of his mouth. It was very hard to be able to tell what he was saying. When when he would try to get down the ladder into those zodiac crafts to go off, it took forever. And I felt kind of awkward with other people there. And then three people came up to me privately before the end of the cruise and said to me, your dad is my hero. I hope when I face whatever I have to face, I can do it like him. A couple of weeks before he died, when he was uh, in the hospital, one person came, And my dad uh, gave that person a framed poem and then another person a book that were very meaningful to both of them, partly because of my dad's situation. And he said to me, see, I can thrive even when I'm dying. Uh, There has been other pain with our family and uh, with our job One of the things that's been real helpful to me in seeking to thrive in this season comes from Viktor Frankl, who is a psychiatrist, uh, survivor of the Holocaust. And there's a book called Say Yes to Life of lectures he gave just months after World War II was done. And he says, one of the big choices that you face is, what question will you ask? He says, you can ask the question, um, what do I expect of life? And when we ask that question, we'll go through our days and kind of wonder, did I have a good day, good circumstances, good things happen, or did I have a bad day, bad things happen? And we'll even teach sometimes with people, if you want to be happy, then just adjust your expectations, what you're expecting of life. Lower your expectations. Expectation, Reality minus expectations equals happiness. That stuff gets taught a lot. You can ask that question. Franco says, the other question is, what does life expect of me? What does God expect of me? I found that to be a real helpful question. Today, God, what do you expect of me? What can I bring to today? What can I do so that when I face my last breath, because I was there when my dad took his last breath, I don't have massive regrets about, oh, why did I do that? Why did I get down that road? To thrive, cultivate hope. One of the books that has meant a lot to me over these last couple years was written by Lou Smeeds, wonderful thinker, teacher, and preacher, and it was his memoir. It's called My God and I. Last book he ever wrote. Uh, he died two weeks after finishing it. And he wrote, he wrote it after he quit teaching at Fuller. He said he wanted to know, now that he didn't have to believe anything, what did he really believe? <laughs> and what he discovered was it all basically comes down to two things. One is gratitude, and the other is hope. He said, when it comes to the future, the only alternatives are illusion, despair, or hope. I scorn illusion, I dread despair, so I put all my eggs in Jesus' basket. And I think a lot in this season about the crucifixion, that there's a cross in the middle of our story. I pretty much never sleep through the night, and so I'll always have a plan. Very often it will involve reading Henry Nouwen because he's so wonderful about finding God in pain. And, and that Jesus' greatest contribution somehow, somehow, somehow is not what he did, but what was done to him. The cross. And then I think a lot about the resurrection. There's this wonderful story by Dale Bruner in his commentary on Matthew about how... Uh, For Jesus, the resurrection was such a core and certain event, he was almost blasé about it. In Matthew in particular, uh, uh, the women are walking and they see Jesus. And the text says that Jesus said, Greetings, and then he walked away. (laughs) Doesn't that seem terribly understated? He's just defeated death, risen from the grave, experienced resurrection. All he has to say is, hey. <laughs> Brunet tells about this uh, children's sermon where somebody's asking the kids in the children's sermon, does anybody know what Jesus said after his resurrection? And one little girl raised her hand and said, I do. Ta-da! <laughs> and it's not a bad translation. And I don't know, but I have a feeling when he came out of the tomb, he did this. so. This is the ultimate for us to thrive. It is the power of the resurrection that builds communities, that has done this now for two millennia, that transformed women and men, that healed wounds, that broke addictions, that freed people from sin, that inspired unbelievable generosity, that created gifted servants and imparted life. He has done it before. Do it again. God bless you all.